Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Just a heads up, this episode contains descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. I want to shake hands with him and I'm pushed away. You can't shake hands because you're not a friend. You're an enemy. So please go back. That's Betty Bagombe a former Ugandan minister describing the moment in 1993 when she came face-to-face with a notorious warlord. She met up with him in an effort to broker peace in northern Uganda, a part of the country that was plagued by violence and war. Those moments when I felt really, really scared, and I didn't want to show that I was very scared, but I was deep down in my heart, my goodness, if only they knew. <laughs> but on the surface, I was very calm, very smooth, begged my voice not to tremble <laughs> any moment. And uh, what language do I deploy? A motherly language. Because maybe and maybe that can touch his heart and soul and look at me as a protector as opposed to an enemy. Betty Bagombe's story is as much about changing the world as it is a personal story of change. On today's episode, one woman's approach to unlocking peace in the enemy. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. 
Betty's story unfolds in the 1980s in Uganda. That's when the country's president, Yuweri Museveni, asked Betty to take on a seemingly impossible mission in northern Uganda, where war had broken out. Betty was a government minister at the time, and Museveni wanted her to try and persuade rebels to put down their weapons and bring an end to the violence. Betty was aware of the profound danger that might lie ahead for her. She had no formal training in conflict resolution, and Joseph Kony, the rebel leader responsible for so much violence in the North, was a crazed warlord. He enslaved women and girls and abducted tens of thousands of children and turned them into child soldiers to fight his war. So when Museveni asked Betty to go on this dangerous mission and leave behind her young family in the safety of home, she wanted to know, why was he choosing her? He said, well, I just need somebody that I can trust, that can tell the people of northern Uganda to persuade their children to put down their weapons. And Betty, why did you agree to say yes to this? I mean, it was an incredibly dangerous situation that you were entering into. Well, first of all, you must know our mentality. Um, I was, at the time, already a government minister. How dare you say no to your president when he instructs you to do something? So I felt, therefore, then, that I had to do it. I had a lot of fear deep down in my heart. Plus, I also, I had small young children. My daughter was just about two years old. And so here I was asked to go and live in a war zone. You know, I, I, I feel like you're not giving yourself enough credit for the decision that you made. And the reason I say that is, you know, you had been asked you had been appointed a minister by the president, and you actually resigned from that particular job because you felt it wasn't action-oriented enough, right? That you were basically just pushing paper and that you really wanted to get in the trenches and make as big a difference as you possibly could. Right. Maybe my resignation at that time did contribute to this in the sense that I went to him and I said, look, I cannot do crossword puzzle in, in the office. Neither can I do, can I read novels like I see other people do. I want work. And if you cannot give me real work, then I'm out of here. And uh, African ministers don't resign. So it was kind of a shock to him to hear somebody threatening to, to resign because I had all this energy and uh, desire to perform. You know, many of your friends called this a suicidal mission, and they urged you to reconsider your choice. Um, well, there were people who said, look, he wants you dead. Why should he pick you, a woman, young at the time, with a young family, uh, to go and do this? So there were lots of discouraging talks. But I must also add in here that... There'd been wars in Uganda, had gone through wars and other civil strife, but I had never been assigned the responsibility to bring it to an end. So uh, that kind of, in a way, inspired me to, if I can go and end this conflict and my people can go back home, get away from squalid camps and leave in dignity, even if it's poverty, mm. 
But like any other person, I set myself a deadline that I must end this war in six months. Lo and behold, when I got there, it was a completely different story. Betty moves to Gulu, one of the largest cities in northern Uganda, to meet the people there and figure out how to end the violence. Since northern Uganda had been Betty's home, she thought she would be well-respected. But when she arrives at the camps in Gulu as a government official, she's met with a very different response. I was dismissed by many people. First of all, there were those who said, well, she's never faced the gun, so she'll run away. It won't be long before she runs away. Uh, There were those who said, well, I mean, the same story. Why a woman? This is a male domain. Uh, She cannot do anything. So... In African community, when a woman is given such responsibility, she must be a girlfriend. You don't earn it. There must be some kind of relationship between you. So there were those who felt, well, nobody goes to that place anyway, not even government or officials. So probably he just wants her away where he can have access to her anytime. I also had inferiority complex inferiority complex that nobody knew me, nobody knew my family. My family was not one of those prominent families that were known. So reaction was, who is she? Who is this? Uh, And I still remember one elder saying that, well, if Museveni wanted to end the war, he could have appointed somebody from a prominent family and not a non-entity whom nobody knew where she came from. The only thing I had on my side was that I had gone to the best schools in the country. I had graduated from university. Um, Just the fact that I had to introduce myself, who I was, was not an easy exercise. Hmm. I'd like to hear about what it was that you were confronted with in those first few days in northern Uganda. Can you set the scene for people who might not know what the state of affairs was like? What I was confronted with was was really traumatizing, was going into these squalid camps and finding people living in a situation that is difficult to describe. But what even traumatized me more was to find people who were emaciated, children, little babies, suckling breasts from mothers who had no milk whatsoever, not even water. You could see their heads. You could see count their ribs. Sometimes the number of children who were dying was just, I couldn't even count them. And I'd never come face to face with people starving to death. So that was spiritually wrenching. And probably I could say that this really inspired me too. That it has to come to an end. And when I walked into the camps, it gave people some hope that there is somebody, an official of the government, who probably will talk to government so that we can get food. Uh, so that she could talk to the, to the international community, so that we could get some means of livelihood. 
You know, you mentioned, Betty, you were met with a lot of skepticism, right? Yes. How, how right. do you work yeah. to build credibility and trust in, in the people that you are interacting with? I developed a culture of not lecturing to people, that people had grievances. They needed to talk. I encouraged them. I said, if you want to insult me, go ahead and do it. If you want to insult the president, do it, anything. But what I want us is to bring peace. So I would sit and listen and listen for hours. And the most important thing to, to build that trust, for people to realize that you're serious, you're there for them, to mourn with them, to grieve with them, and not just stay in town, but go and stay in the camps with them so that when they're hungry, you're also hungry. You're not going to take something special for yourself. And this uh, this was very instrumental in uh, confidence building and trust building by the people uh, because then I demonstrated some kind of seriousness that people think, Okay, if she can stay with us in the camp and eat what we're eating, then she must be committed. I, I was very determined to prove my mettle. Betty's decision to stay at the various camps carries unbelievable risk. The camps were scattered all over the region, and rebels were routinely raiding them and murdering civilians. I went through... Landmines planted for me uh, a pickup truck that was carrying civilians was blown up. And I still remember vividly picking up a three-year-old baby where the mother was killed by the landmine and picking up this baby and other wounded people. And, of course, the other thing which was very traumatizing was that each time the rebels attacked a camp, to abduct and kill people, I had to be the first person on the scene. The most painful thing were, was mothers, parents running to me and saying, please save our children have been abducted. Uh, our loved ones have been killed. Could you help to bury them? And the painful thing was I knew I could not save them, but I had to give them hope. You want them to continue to be resilient. Betty spends close to a year living among the people at the camps, working to build trust with civilians and key players in the region. But there's one person Betty has yet to meet face-to-face, -face, the rebel leader, Joseph Kony. Kony was the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, or LRA, and he believed that he received messages directly from God. With Kony in charge, the LRA committed countless atrocities against the people of northern Uganda including murder, beatings, abductions, mutilations, and rape. Betty, what had you heard about Joseph Kony at that time? Horrible things. I'd seen people whose lips had been cut, nose, noses have been cut, ears have been chopped off, private parts cut off. This monster, I'd heard a lot about him. Uh, there were a few people who managed to escape and would tell me what kind of person he was. They all believed that he had supernatural power, that he was talking to God directly, and whatever he predicted uh, did occur, did happen later. I'd also heard from some of the uh, wives 
the girls who had been captured and he would have um shall I be crude and say sex with at least six in one night. So I'd heard all these horrible stories about him. So in my mind was this monster mm. that you even think sometimes he had horns. Yeah. At, at one point, you you received a death threat from Coney's army. Yes. And the letter said that the rebels were going to kill you. Right. I still have that letter. The letter came barely two months after I had been in. And uh, was that, get out of here as soon as possible. If you don't, we're going to kill you. Uh, this is a male domain. So if you don't get out of here, uh, we have a way of getting you. We know where you're staying, and uh, we can follow you anywhere. And when you saw the content of the letter, what led you to stay? Uh, one, in a situation like that, you don't want to show that you're a coward. Oh, that's one. Two, having seen what I had seen, how could I desert and leave children dropping dead like flies? How could I desert people who were dying of treatable diseases? It would be highly immoral. In fact, I still remember one meet, one uh, public rally I went for in one of the camps. And as I was talking, the bodyguards I went with came to me and said, the rebels are approaching. And I could see people around me slowly disappearing. And uh, I could see also the soldier government troops were terribly scared. But I told them, if we run away, what message is it going to send to the rebels? Of course, my heart was beating like crazy, about to pop out of my, my chest. But I had to exhibit courage at that point in time. So I told them, we're going to go, but we're going to move very, very slowly so that it does not send a message of panic to the population. Because tomorrow, it will be all over places that Betty ran away from the rebels. How would it be perceived? Then the next time, how can I face people again if I did that? Betty's work to establish herself as a leader and to build trust in the community proves effective. She's tipped off to the fact Coney might be located somewhere nearby. But rather than flee, Betty decides she wants to engage with Coney directly. She sends him a letter and addresses him in a rather unique way. You know, it says so much to me about the nature of your peacemaking that when you reached out to Coney, you referred to him as your son, and you appealed to, to right. your united belief in the same God. And look, Betty, it was extremely effective because that led him to initiate a direct meeting with you. Is that right? Right. At that time, what I wanted to find out would peace talk be possible. And so my approach was then meeting and trying to understand his mindset. Betty's approach works. Coney agrees to meet her face-to-face, -face, more than 16 miles deep in the jungle. She's told she can bring six people with her, as long as none of them are armed. So 
I just I thought of who the six people I could take with me, knowing how dangerous it was. Uh, I even contemplated taking poison with me because just in case it became very dangerous, I didn't want to be tortured. I'd rather get myself killed instantly. So I went to religious leaders since he has this fanatic religious belief. So I went to the Catholic bishop who said, fantastic, we'll come with you. I went to the Anglican bishop who said, we need peace, we'll come with you. I went to the Muslim and I said, I want two, two, two of each. That was two weeks before. And please, please, nobody must tell anybody about this mission. And they all promised nothing would happen. But when the day finally arrives, all of them cancel. The Catholic bishop sent me a letter and said, we pray for you. It's time to bring peace, but we cannot come with you. Good to be with you. The Anglican escaped to, to Kampala City. Uh, the Muslim said, I have diarrhea, I have uh, uh, malaria, I can't come with you. So that moment in time, I was very scared. So I debated within myself, do I abort this mission or do I go? Eventually, I wrote to my family, this is going to happen. I may not make it back. Wrote to President Museveni, said my children must get educated. And then I set off, knowing how dangerous it was. Betty makes her way through the jungle, and she knows she's being watched. Coney's soldiers are hidden throughout, some up in trees, monitoring her movements. You had all these child soldiers. Obviously, AK-47 was too heavy for them and too tall, too tall for them. And yet, one was behind me, one in front, one on left and right side of me. Uh, suddenly, I'm walking and one elderly man popped out with sheer butter oil all over and splashed it all over me, reciting something. If you have bad intentions, can this wash this away so that... Uh, you don't hurt us. So at that point in time, I stopped. And I said, what is this you're doing? And one of their, another commander popped out and said, oh, please, forget this. They don't know what is going on. We want these peace talks to succeed. Please persevere. So I continued. And then out of nowhere, another one pops out and hold, holds me by my neck. And again, I said, I am not going anywhere. If you want to kill me, you can now kill me here. Again, another commander comes and persuades me. Now, we are not very far from the venue. Uh, please, let's continue. Uh, the big man, they would call him, will be coming soon. And it was just, I was totally overwhelmed. Uh, there was jumping. There was shouting. There was screaming that the demon is coming out. There was laughter from some distance. Then finally he comes in. So I go like I want to shake hands with him and I'm pushed away. You can't shake hands because you're not a friend. You're an enemy. So please go back. Then he introduced his senior commanders who said whatever they wanted to say. Then eventually it was him who started talking and he talked for about four hours that first meeting. And then I responded 
very briefly, basically praising God, speaking the same language as him. Then what happened was, because we stayed late, it was dark, all we could see were fireflies. Then he decided, said, we haven't concluded anything. We haven't even started talking. So you're not going anywhere. You're going to spend the night here so that tomorrow we can resume the talks early in the morning. Again, my heart was about to burst to come out of my chest. But um, I kept very calm and I said, again, this is God's wish. God is great. However, I want you to know that I am your mother, but I'm also a government official. Now, if government soldiers wait for me on the other side and I don't show up, they will think there's a problem. They will storm this place and fighting will break out and we will probably will all die and then there will be no more peace talks. So he said, you're right. We have consulted. You're right. That could happen. Again, I said, praise God. You're fant- God is fantastic. Hallelujah. Amen. This is now, <laughs> you have to be to act like you're obsessed too. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, this is fantastic. And in my heart, what is coming next? Eventually he said, you're right. You can go. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. 
The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Betty Bagombe manages to make it out of that first meeting with Joseph Coney alive. And she goes on to meet with him five more times over the next year and a half. And even though he's responsible for countless atrocities, Betty chooses not to treat him like the enemy. You've mentioned that you you focused on using lang- the language of a mother rather than of a militant. Yes. When you engage with him. Do you mind sharing right. more about that choice? I mean, it must have taken... I, I guess my question is motivated by the idea that you're sitting in front of this monstrous human and you're trying to maintain your composure, but you seem to have also had the the cognitive wherewithal to be strategic in the way that you were interacting with him. And so I, I'm just trying to dig into that a bit more. If I call you my son, then that means I'm going to protect you. A mother cannot be a danger to her child or children. A mother will provide protection. So the whole thing was, here I am your mother. Well, all I want is for you to be safe and people to be safe and people to live in dignity. So those moments when I felt really, really scared, and I didn't want to show that I was very scared, but I was deep down in my heart, my goodness, if only they knew. (laughs) But on the surface, I was very calm, very smooth, begged my voice not to tremble (laughs) any moment, And uh, what language do I deploy? A motherly language. Because maybe and maybe that can touch his heart and soul and look at me as a protector as opposed to an enemy. Betty continues to connect with Kony on a personal level. And in doing so, she makes great progress towards peace. She's so successful that Kony ends up calling her Mummy Bigombe. And remarkably, one year after that first meeting deep in the jungle, Kony agrees to enter into peace talks. A date and venue to sign a peace agreement are agreed upon, and Betty rushes to President Museveni to tell him the news. But Museveni has changed his mind and cancels the continuation of the peace process, opting for a military solution instead. Kony and his rebel army respond by attacking a small village and killing hundreds of people. I was so totally traumatized by the killing, the massacre that took place of innocent people. I was so heartbroken. That was 1994. Betty ends up stepping away for some time. She says she needs some breathing space, some distance from the tragedy that's just occurred. Betty ends up joining the World Bank 
But just as she's getting ready to leave on a work trip in 2004, she catches a glimpse of a CNN segment that shows scenes of the continued violence taking place in northern Uganda. Here was CNN breaking news. The Lord's Resistance Army went into a camp in northern Uganda, killed over 300 people. Some were hacked to death. Some were shot dead as they were running away. Here I am getting ready to travel. This breaking news. The only person who almost ended the war was Betty Bigombe. She met the rebel leader. She did this and did that on CNN. I couldn't believe it. So I thought this was a calling. I'm going back. I'm quitting my job. So I did. Returned in 2004 and initiated another round of peace talks. And I went and told President Museveni that, please, this is true. It's a crazy group without any clear political ideology. But we have to talk to them. It's tarnished to your image because it is believed that you don't want to want the end the war. Put yourself in the shoes of the parents in northern Uganda whose children get abducted and they helplessly cry and look and some of them lose their children forever. You love your children. They also love their children. The grandparents in northern Uganda are in squalid camps. The elders have lost their dignity. They're not like your father who is living in dignity. Put yourself in that shoes. Then he said, I have no problem. Please, if you can reach after them, do. And so, with Museveni's blessing, Betty attempts to restart the peace process with the LRA. Those negotiations ultimately break down, but Betty's work helps the government set the stage for more successful peace talks a year later. And although the agreement is never signed, the LRA agrees to give up nearly all their weapons and land and considerably shrinks down in size. I think what's so important about your story, Betty, is that it speaks to incremental progress. Um, You're absolutely right. It's about having that determination that it can happen, it must happen, but it takes a lot. There will be challenges. You run, you fall down. You get up and start again, and you fall down. And and, and that is very typical of all uh, conflict resolution exercises. When people have, when blood has been shed, when there's deep-seated distrust, when uh, so much uh, negative things have gone under the waters, it's not something that you'll say, shake hands, now you're brother and sister, you can now go home and live together, uh, happy, uh, happy ever after. Betty, I have one final question for you. Um, we've, we've talked today about how it is that you changed the world, and I want to know how this set of experiences changed you. Oh, it really has. Um, I want to be where there is war. When I see on television screen children in Yemen, in Syria, the women, I want to be there. Maybe I cannot end the conflict, but give them hope. Maybe there are ways of saving lives 
of people and maybe reaching out the factions and trying to talk to them some kind of sense. Maybe I can give some people ideas. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me next week when I talk to Shapiro Wells, a mother from Chicago whose son, Courtney Copeland, was murdered. Shapiro launched her own investigation to find out what actually happened in his final moments. It wasn't by choice. I had no other option. I needed to know why. And I needed to know how. How did these things occur? What happened? And I had to try to uncover whatever I could. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our associate producer, and Mia Lavelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Leetal Malad, and Heather Fain. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week. <laughs>